Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 247 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I catch up with rum and cocktail expert Matt Petrick. He's a New Orleans-based beverage writer and scholar known for his extremely popular first book, Minimalist Tiki, but he's here to talk about his latest epic project, Modern Caribbean Rum, a contemporary reference to the region's essential spirit. This is truly a massive work. And as always, Matt and I have a lot to discuss when it comes to cane-based distillates and the cultures and economics and histories responsible for their propagation. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves here, let's take a pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Cobra's Fang. To make it, you'll need one half ounce each of lime juice, orange juice, and passion fruit syrup. One quarter ounce velvet falernum, which is a spiced almond ginger syrup. One and a half to two ounces of overproof British rum, something from Guyana, i.e. a Demerara style, or Jamaica is what you'll use here, and we'll discuss this much further in just a second. One to two dashes of Angostura bitters, and six drops of absinthe. Combine these ingredients in a blender with about a cup of crushed ice, blend until smooth, then pour into your tiki vessel or highball glass of choice, grab a straw, and enjoy. Garnishes for this drink run the gamut, some involving a cinnamon stick, some a mint bouquet, and some opting for a more theatrical portrayal of this dangerous snake's venomous bite. The Cobra's Fang is a 1937 creation of Don Beach, the legendary creator of Don the Beachcomber, who makes a cameo later in this episode. But more importantly than this, more important than the person who created the Cobra's Fang, the conversation about which rum or rums to use in this cocktail provide a lens into the diversity and influence of British-style cane distillates, a topic, again, that comes up further down the road in this conversation. The thing is, Jamaican and Guyanese rums are very different in flavor. The original Cobra's Fang was probably made with a Guyanese style, namely Lemon Heart 151, a number, again, that we'll talk about later. But as different bartenders have explored this drink, some have chosen to use a split base of Guyanese and Jamaican rums, or even migrate entirely to the fruity, funky Jamaican side of the flavor spectrum. Suffice it to say, the rum is the nucleus of this cocktail, and the perfect Cobra's Fang formulation for you is going to entirely depend on your understanding of, and preference for, Demerara-style overproof Guyanese rums, and or Jamaican rums. And that is a project that may require a trip to the liquor store and some quality time with Matt's new book. So now that you're equipped with a classic tiki cocktail developed by Don Beach himself, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this fascinating deep dive into the world of cane distillates with Matt Petrick, author of Modern Caribbean Rum, some of the topics we discuss include how Matt and his wife Carrie collaborated to create an 800-plus page self-published treatise on the rums of the Caribbean through strategy, structure, and of course, visiting so many of the incredible producers who pour their life into this spirit. Then we get into the weeds on a wide-ranging set of topics related to the classification of rum, and this is really the heart of the book. We talk about the broad strokes differences between British style, French style, and Spanish style rums, the impact of colonial history and economics on the timelines and styles that were propagated in different islands and regions, and why Matt thinks about rum as a meta-category of spirits that contains multitudes of styles and flavors. 
Along the way, we cover the palletized nuances of self-publishing, the four main decision buckets that dictate the kind of rum that a given producer will bottle, the surprising influence of Canadians on overproof rum bottling strength, and much, much more. One of the threads I'd like you to try and pick up on in this conversation is the sticky question of bi-directionality when it comes to those big three rum styles, British, French, and Spanish. And by bi-directionality, I simply mean how both top-down and bottom-up variables influenced process and flavor changes over time. My main question to Matt was, how did these colonial styles maintain such strong identities despite being separated by lots of space? Remember, the Caribbean is mostly islands, and these colonial powers didn't always own all the islands that were right next to one another. And I think this is one of the really powerful reasons to pick up a copy of modern Caribbean rum. There's no one good answer to this question. You need to acquaint yourself with the history and culture of each place to understand how their endemic flavors make sense, how that rum is the perfect rum for that island or region. And that is precisely why I'm so excited to share with you this conversation with Matt Petrick, author of Modern Caribbean Rum. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. It's, it's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, so I, I was just thinking before we started recording here, it feels like a lifetime ago that we were here speaking about your book, Minimalist Tiki, and uh, and now we're here speaking about a new book project. But before we get into that, I'm just hoping for our listeners who might be newer to the show or who haven't had the pleasure of listening to our initial interview, can you just introduce yourself and give us a, a high-level breakdown of who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah, my name is Matt Petrick. I am a former, um, or, or should say retired software engineer, if you, if you want to put it that way, uh, but a software engineer for 30 years who found myself drawing more and more to wanting to write about spirits and cocktails. And then uh, I started doing that. And all of a sudden, I'm like drawing more and more into rum, more and more into tiki cocktails. And I love them all. But but rum and, and tiki tropical lifestyle cocktails are, are my particular passion. And so since, since I've started that, uh, I essentially quit my job at uh, my software job and my wife and I quit our, quit our jobs, moved to New Orleans for her to go to grad school. And uh, uh, before we moved to New Orleans, we wrote Minimalist Tiki. And then once we were here, we started on a new book. So, And what a coincidence that you happen to also be in the orbit of, uh, of a particular beach bum with a particular bar in New Orleans. Shout out to Jeff Barry. That's that's fantastic. It was also great to run into you in New Orleans at uh, this past year's Tales of the Cocktail. We had a, a great time catching up, and that was sort of like almost like an uh, an amuse bouche for this conversation because we we got into while we were catching up some of the the interesting research that you had been kind of finishing up for for this project. So why don't you introduce your new book to our listeners and just kind of give us a high-level overview before we start diving into some of the more um, specialized verticals that you have? Sure. Actually, let me grab, let me grab a copy right here <clears throat> real quick. Um, first and foremost, what it's called Modern Caribbean Rum, and it's it's kind of a beast of a book. It, it weighs, yeah. weighs eight pounds. <laughs> which, which we did, you know, that was not the starting goal, but we, but, you know, essentially I just kept writing and writing and so many more topics to discover. And at some point we were laying it out and I went like, holy cow, this is, we're, we're not even done laying it out and it's 600 pages. And these are big 10 inch by 10 inch pages. So we get a lot on the page and it still took 850 pages. But the book itself, uh, the contents of the book itself are essentially, you can think of it as, as, as everything, as, as, a, as a rum geek, everything I wanted to know about rum when I jumped into it uh, and couldn't find. So I wanted to know who are the actual people making rum? Who are the distilleries? How do they operate? How, how did they make rum? How, how do they make different from another distillery? Uh, what about the different styles of rum? Uh, like why is Jamaican rum different from Barbados rum, different from Cuban rum? I wanted to know for more of the business behind rum. Uh, I, at some point, I learned that many of the of the famous brands that we know, like Smith and Cross, for example, are, there's no Smith and Cross distillery. The there's actually one company in Amsterdam that makes 
that basically blends the rum for many of the many of the world's popular rum brands, but nobody had ever heard this story. And so I just started, the more I jumped into rum, the more I learned, uh, and more I learned I didn't know. And this book was my, okay, it's finally time to, to either write down what I know or go learn what I don't know, figure out what it, what I need to know, and then write it down. So it's a, <laughs> it's intended to be a very comprehensive look at Caribbean rum today. It's not it's not a it's not necessarily a history book, although there is history within it. Uh, it's not a book about um, you know 100 rums you should try. There's no tasting notes. There's no reviews and no review scores. It's very much uh, a rum enthusiast guide to the spirit in, in as many dimensions as I could cram into 850 pages. Yeah. So I, I guess moral of the story, lift with your legs, not your back when when, when you receive your copy in the mail. Um, <laughs> this is also a, a self-published book. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Back when we did Minimalist Tiki, we self-published that and we needed, you know, at some point there's a, a spot on a form somewhere that says publisher. We're like, well, let's walk press so he just sort of came up with the name and and didn't really think much beyond that but then when we decided to do this book we like hey you know you know uh, we you know maybe we should try to make an actual publishing company out of that and sort of you know jumping way ahead we actually have a couple more books in the pipeline that, that I didn't write. So we're sort of taking our, our model of, of, of uh, independent publishing along with a with a profit sharing model with the authors and trying to, to get books into people's hands from people who are very passionate about a topic and that maybe a traditional publisher wouldn't wouldn't you know want to publish or they would want to publish it but they'd want to shrink it down to sort of their preconceived idea of what a book should be and i don't think any publisher would have would have wanted to if i would have come to them and say i want to do 850 pages on rum uh i don't think they would have gone for it so uh the you know sort of like we're going to do it on our own and you know, we will sink or swim on our own on our own uh merits so but yes that was we did we just self-publish it we do every everything to do with it. We, we, we write the books, we lay out the books. Uh, in many cases, we take the photography, we pay to have the books uh, professionally printed on the high quality offset printers uh, in South Korea. When the books are printed, they come to us in New Orleans. And so come uh, December, we will hopefully have 16,000 pounds of books arriving on 11 pallets. Uh, and we, 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 we distribute the books, we sell them, we, we do literally everything, but in exchange for that, uh, we make far more uh, revenue than a traditional you know, author publisher model. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm, I'm glad that that, uh, that initial decision that you made for a minimalist Tiki seems to be uh, paying off and, you know, at least, uh, moving, moving toward a slightly larger scale for you. So that's exciting to hear. And, you know, one of the things about traditional publishers is that they are notorious for skipping leg day at the gym. So it doesn't surprise me that they would probably balk at a book that heavy and that big. So I want to ask you how you think the best way to start talking about the content of this book would be because you sent me over a wonderful preview and I had a great time reading through the introduction by the president of Worspa, the uh, West Indies rum and spirits producers as and spirits producers. Oh yeah, I got you. Got me at the end there, mm -hmm. and I loved the sections that I was able to to kind of scan in preparation for this. But I, I mean, like, how? So so you had all the like all this information. I guess maybe this is the way we'll get into it. You had all this information and all these questions that you had had along your journey learning about rum. Of course, prior to this book, you had done some traveling. I'm sure for this book, you did other, you know, specific trips to 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 learn on the ground. How did you take this information from its raw, disorganized, chaotic state and put it into this structured format? And uh, this, I'm asking this question this way because I think that you and your programmer's mindset are like probably uniquely suited to taking that that hurly-burly that chaotic information and putting it into a, a usable and enjoyable format no I, I love this question uh, as a as a programmer 
we we were always always the, during the design phase of, of writing software at the end of the day you know software is basically code and data and this code needs to algorithmically operate on this data and so you need to very quickly learn how to organize your data in a way that makes sense in a way where it's accessible where you can find what you need where uh, it's at the right place at the right time, so to speak. And so after 30 years in software, I just naturally uh, have a way of thinking. I, uh, I tend to think very hierarchically, like big picture ideas, smaller ideas within that, you know, and, and you know, that naturally maps to an outline. And I know I, I, and so many other authors we've worked with or people who are thinking of, of doing a book, the number one piece of advice I give them is, is get it into an outline. And, and that's hard. But the first thing you do is just is literally just write it all down, like write down her um, like stream of thought on, on a piece of paper or in a, in a OneNote notebook or something, but literally empty your head of all these things that you think you want to talk about. And then you, use, you, you can use tools like you know, in Microsoft Word, the, the outline view or OneNote or whatever you can, you know, before you start writing, you're taking these ideas and you're moving them around like, well, does this go with this or this with that? But it's very important to sort of, before you start writing, to have a clear idea of, of how, what you're going to write and how you're going to approach it. If you're not somebody who, who thinks like that, it's probably a, a, a big challenge to do that. But at the end of the day, your your outline is your your, your well-structured outline. It's sort of like your your lifeline, if you will, to where you, where you keep going. I, I often compared this book to like a long ocean journey where you're like sailing, sailing, sailing for three years. And the outline is sort of like that, that sort of like North Star or what, however you want to describe it. But it's that thing of like, okay, I am always like, how am I doing relative to the outline? I've not drifted off, but I'm still progressing through the outline. And you don't have to write the book in order of the outline. But the outline sort of is that check mark that gives you like I'm making progress. I've checked, I've done this, I've done this. I still have to do that. So it, it doesn't work to just start writing and not sort of have the map of where you're trying to go to. Yeah, that's that's actually really good advice. I used to teach um, college level English courses and the, the outline was always a fight with the students. But the the everyone like in every class, there was one person who would like kind of come up to me after we did all this outline. They'd come up to me and they'd be like, dude, did you realize that like I, it just occurred to me that I can write the entire paper like this? Like you could go from the outline and then like if you go deep enough into the outline, you're literally just writing sentences that you are going to stack on top of one another, exactly. which make your paragraphs. So it's exactly. uh, yeah, it's, it's it, it really exactly. is like, you know, the journey of a thousand miles. You got to start putting one foot in front of the other and exactly. uh, having and, and, having that map is yeah, invaluable. And you don't and you don't have to have everything diagrammed down to the to the um, outline or to the paragraph level you know the way I think about it is is if I looked at a line if it a one line of an outline and I could speak three sentences or three sentences or three paragraphs about it that's good enough when I get to that part in the outline like oh this is the topic in enough detail where I go blah 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 done exactly but yeah, I know, I know people, I used to struggle with it. I didn't want to do it. I, I, I mean, hell, I never thought I would someday make make a living writing. And like, you know, it, it will seem crazy. But again, this, the software has always leads me to think in this very hierarchical way. Even, even emails I compose end up kind of looking like an outline, you know? Right, right. Well... I'm sort of I'm being primed by your backdrop right now, which is just for those joining us just on on audio. It's just rum. It, it's all the rum behind you, and it, it's leading me to sort of a dual question here. One part one is what about rum to you? It makes it so fascinating in a way that you're almost. I, I, I've seen. I follow you on social media. I know that you post about other spirits as well. Recently, some nice American whiskeys. But what about rum makes it something that you are so willing to tunnel vision yourself into? And the part two of that, and maybe maybe this is somewhat related, is 
I mean, the book is called Modern Caribbean Rum. The Caribbean is essentially an archipelago of different islands producing different rums in different ways. Why, like, isn't it somewhat fitting that, like, based on, like, the way that rum kind of works, that it's, that the Caribbean was, like, this <clears throat> natural place for it to find its, like, I guess it's it's apotheosis or it's apex of like the best place to make it. That's a that's a really interesting question like that. Um, I haven't thought about it that way, but l- let me try to tackle it in in, a, in what makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, first off, is is you know, a rum is yummy. Like if you've never had it <laughs> making rum, um, you'll you'll either hate it or you'll love it. But if you if you if you love it, when that first sip, your your brain. Uh, is you're going to go like, oh, wait, this is what I've been missing my entire life. Like <laughs> when people talk about rum, flavors of rum, this is it. This is something I've never really experienced before. <laughs> so, um, A, you know, like I said, it's yummy. Um, but beyond that, you know, I think, you know, it goes into some uh, something sort of I've ranted a lot in various uh, stories, basically the categorizations of spirits, <laughs> like we talk about, Bourbon is a spirit, and Scotch whiskey is a spirit, and Irish whiskey is a spirit, and cognac is a spirit, and and then we put rum alongside of there, but it's not like that. Rum is actually a, a meta category, if you will, that that if you that if you think about Irish whiskey, Scotch whiskey, Canadian whiskey, Japanese whiskey, they're all styles they're all substyles of a of a whiskey they're all different but they're all substyles of a whiskey and it's the same with rum that that rum is not just one thing it's not like bourbon or it's not like scotch whiskey rum is is a collection of many different substyles and so i like to say you know to use an analogy you can think of jamaican rum as being like Scotch whiskey and Barbados rum might be like Irish whiskey. <laughs> so, you know, the, uh, the upshot of all that is that rum is, is incredibly diverse, more so than any other spirit. Like, uh, like if you look at the breadth of whiskeys, like even if you took all the different styles of whiskeys, even peated whiskeys or whatever, you look at, okay, what's the sort of the envelope of their flavor profile? And you did the same thing, maybe not with some brandy, but if you said all great brandies, for example, what's the envelope of their flavor profile from Pisco to brandy to Armagnac? And then you look at rum, like all the different styles from Jamaican rum to Claire and whatever. It's just so much broader that there's so wildly different to the point where if you take somebody who's who's not who's you know a good taster but has never experienced rum or isn't familiar with the styles and you give them three different uh, different styles of rum they probably wouldn't identify them as being the same spirit just even the same family of spirit so it's incredibly diverse it has there's so much to explore and there's something for everyone like some people love the jamaican rum and and think that the the Spanish heritage rums are relatively you know, light in flavor, and other people may love that. My wife, Carrie, co-author of the book, she leans towards more towards that style. And there are people like me who are like, these are all my children. I love them all <laughs> for different reasons, but I love them all. So it's just, just so much to explore there and so much history behind it that... You know, I know people like to dig deep on bourbon, or <clears throat> dig deep in Scotch whiskey. It's like, I think of it like, like I have, you know, 10 times more different avenues to go down and play with when it comes to rum. Mm, yeah, no, I, I love that. And it's kind of a situation where you can find like your island, right? Mm. Where you feel at home and the style being produced in that geographic locale happens to just light up all the areas in your brain that you want to be lit up. Or you could be more like you and kind of like do the island hopping. Say, like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and visit as many of these as I possibly can, knowing that as you mentioned, it's such a diverse. I, I love that notion of a meta category because it also makes me think about how liquor stores are organized. Also, <clears throat> probably primed by all those bottles behind you and. You walk into the liquor store and there's the bourbon shelf and the scotch shelf, both whiskeys. Right. And yet 
there's only one rum shelf. There's not a Claren shelf. Exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it's kind of it's sneaky in that way. And you know, I I want to allow your book to do most of the work for us on this. If people are are curious about all the specific details that um, kind of delineate these different categories from one another, obviously next step would be to pre-order the book. But I do want to, I want to get in a little bit to the big broad buckets of rum styles because my, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was preparing for our conversation is that with all these different rules that you, like the production style rules that you're encountering in, in these different categories and the different islands or countries within those categories, you doubtless encountered places where there were like little cracks, like things didn't quite line up. It's not like Jamaican rum starts here and ends here and right where like Jamaican or British style rum stops. Well, then that's where the French style kind of picks up and starts. So I'm curious about these cracks because I think the cracks are where the light comes in, Mm -hmm. right? They kind of teach us like the little aha moments that, that make you think like, ah, finally, like I actually get this now. So could you, I guess, just for our listeners who might not be like big rum aficionados, describe those couple of big buckets that rum fits into? Yeah. So, um, I've recently, I mean, I, and I love this question. So I've recently started and I talk a little bit about it in the book, but I've sort of recently did it uh, for a group of people where I said, we need to stop really thinking about or put aside the idea of like, this is a British style rum or a French style or whatever. Um, we need to really think about it as, as a series of, of choices, some key choices that sort of, sort of set the direction that that, that the, the style direction that rum is going to go um, almost in the same way that, like if you think about like a musical band, it was like, well, you know, if it has if it has you know a, a guitar and a bass and a drummer and a drum set, it you know may be able to do a you know a rock and roll type of band. But if it has you know a piccolo and a xylophone and a whatever, uh, they're also instruments, but they're gonna be different. These sort of production choices um, sort of are the key differentiators that sort of. If you, you could almost think of it as Lord of like presets. If you set like this choice like this and this choice like this and this choice like this, you get something akin to a front to a to a Jamaican rum. Or if you had to set them like this, you get something akin to a, like a rum agricole. So the the key differentiators, if you will, are number one is the source material. Are you, you know, and, and I'm dramatically oversimplifying here, but uh, is it made from cane juice, basically fresh squeezed cane juice? Or is it made from molasses? So that's that's one, and I'll and I'll map these in a moment. Cane juice for molasses is one. The second is is it like a very short, fast fermentation where you're like, I want to get alcohol quickly, or is it like we're going to let it sit around and let natural yeast do their thing for two or three weeks? Uh, third is how you distill it. Is is it like distilled very high strength in a very modern column still, or is it done in an old old pot still? And the fourth one is is how you age it. Like, do you do you um, age it short quickly? Do you age it very long time? Do you use like new American oak barrels or or not arrow barrels? But each one of those those criteria, the source material, fermentation, distillation, aging, there are choices there that give us particular direction. So I'm going to sort of do it in in sort of backwards order here. But the, the simplest, if you will, is what we call the rum agricoles, or you could, you know, it's often conflated with French style rum. But the rum agricoles, uh, the fundamental thing about them is that they get their flavor the cane juice cane juice gives you a very different flavor like if you took cane juice and molasses fermented it exactly the same distilled it exactly the same you'd still end up with two very different spirits so if you've had rum agricole if you've had like unaged rum agricole or unaged cachaca for example you know that those have a very unique and grassy flavor that you don't get from from a a molasses based rum so cane juice is sort of one key differentiator. You're not going to see, for example, a cane juice Jamaican rum, really. You're not going to really see a cane juice 
uh, Spanish heritage rum. Like Bacardi's not, to our knowledge, making King Juice rum <laughs> there. So that that's one differentiator. Uh, the second differentiator is is essentially uh, the choice of fermentation and distillation. Uh, to, again, to dramatically oversimplify it. Uh, what we call the Spanish heritage countries, at least traditionally, I think Jamaica, Barbados to a lesser extent, Guyana, they tend to let their, they tend to use a molasses fermentation and they let it run for a while, let the fermentations run for five, seven, six, seven days, maybe get some natural yeast in there. And so the, the fermented wash has a lot of flavor to begin with. And then they run it through a pot still, you know, and it kind of creates a, a sort of a heavier, you know, space to a spirit. Whereas like a Spanish heritage rum, like a Bacardi or, or Don Q or Flor de Cana, they're going to uh, ferment rather quickly, maybe one to two days. They're going to uh, do it close fermenters. They're, the, the wash that you get from it is going to be relatively light in flavor. And then they're going to distill it in a column still. So it's going to have even less flavor there. But then they're going to focus their flavor development more on the aging part. So the, 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 the characteristics that they can impart to a rum via the aging. So we, you know, we kind of think of like the Spanish heritage countries, the Puerto Ricans, the Cubans, uh, Venezuelans, Panamanians are sort of like masters of the aging process that we take a rather a relatively light spirit, but through aging creates something very beautiful. You're never going to really see an unaged Spanish heritage rum. You're not going to see unaged Havana Club, for example. That would be illegal uh, to do that for their GI. But on the other hand, we see unaged Jamaican rum. We see rum fire and whatever. We see unaged rum agricole the you know the, the from martinique and guadalupe like those those you know one way i can think about it sort of a very high level i sort of think about it is like some rums get more of their flavor from the fermentation and that like the flavors are in fermentation and it's concentrated by distillation and other rums get more of their flavor from the aging that what comes out of the fermentation distillation is relatively light, but it's the aging is imparted uh, more of that flavor. So I call them fermentation forward and aging forward rubs. Mm. I really like that way of, of thinking about it because it's, again, it's very you, it's very nuts and bolts. It's like, all right, we're going to flip some switches and depending on the configuration in which these switches are flipped, we can make some pretty reliable assumptions about our outcomes and you know flavors, et cetera. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. Yep, you've heard me singing their praises for the past year now, and to answer a question I'm frequently asked, yes, I still do a little happy dance when my monthly subscription shows up at my door on dry ice and in an insulated bag. I want to highlight a couple aspects of Near Country that normally take the backseat to their meat quality and their impeccable local sourcing, those being affordability and customization. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the price of groceries lately, but the cost of meat, even the factory farm stuff, has been skyrocketing. But because Near Country keeps things local to the Mid-Atlantic, your meat doesn't have to travel far, and it doesn't change hands half a dozen times before it hits shelves, meaning you don't have to pay for all those markups from middlemen. Every time I do a price comparison between Near Country and the grocery store, I'm blown away by the quality that I'm getting relative to the cost. And when it comes to flexibility, I've never worked with a subscription service where I have so much control. Let's say, for example, that you've got something against pork chops. Every month, Adam and his team send around a survey that allows you to say, hey, I don't want pork chops this month. Or, I don't want pork chops ever again. Or, a more reasonable request, I'd love it if you can include pork chops in my delivery every month. Preferences change, diets change, and special requests and cuts are always on your mind at certain times of the year, and Near Country gets that. They bend over backwards to help meet your changing needs. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, all one word, that's B-A-R-C-A-R-T, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. And believe me, you'll be glad that you did. Now back to the show. 
And I know that you were recommending before that, you know, maybe lumping these rum styles into the sort of like Spanish heritage, French heritage, British heritage buckets wasn't necessarily um, the best way to go about it. But it, it makes me think of how literally archipelagic the Caribbean is, but it's not like all of the French all of the French islands are over here and all of the British islands are over here and in this one corner and all of the Spanish style are over in this corner. They're all mixed together. And so I, I guess my question is like, despite the fact that they're all mixed together, how did those, I guess, heritages exert such a strong influence on production, right? Are, is there something about the Spanish that love barrels, in uh, other words? So it's, so it's actually, it's a, it's, a, it's a really fascinating question and something I've spent a lot of time, um, may someday write a book about sort of essentially the evolution of styles. Like why did we go in these different directions? And, and um, there's still things I'm learning, but, um, is, a, is a couple of things. For one thing, you have to realize that these style evolutions uh, emerged well before these were countries in their own right. <clears throat> so, you know, you, you cannot separate colonialism from the Caribbean. Jamaican rum was the way it was in the 1700s, and it was very much a British colony. Uh, and in Cuba was was a British colony, I'm sorry, Spanish colony till till uh, 1902 or so, the Spanish Revolution. And so, you know, and the other thing as well is that uh, as a colony, you weren't necessarily making that rum for what for what you were drinking locally. I mean, obviously the locals were drinking rum, but so much of that rum, especially early on, 1600, 1700, 1800, was destined to go be exported, go to Europe, for example. So the French were making rum for the French market, you know, the, Europe, the European market, and the Spanish were making rum and sending it to the Spanish market. And certainly we know that, that the, you know, the British colonies, primarily uh, Jamaica and Guyana, British, what well, we call Guyana today, but at the time would have been called Demerara, uh, sending rum to, to the United Kingdom. So they were sort of serving their their larger parent market, if you will. Um, beyond that, um, there's also uh, basically the history and economic conditions changed it greatly. And I could easily talk two hours about this, but long story short, um, sort of the, you know, the, the British, what we would call British style rum, a much more pot still open fermentation, is sort of the closest to what rum was very early on. And that uh, they they basically had a uh, could dominate that market in the 1700s because the the Spanish and the French um, uh, metropoles basically told their their colonies like don't make rum like don't make rum you're competing like our people back home don't want you making rum um, it's competition with our home people so they were basically in 1700s forbidden to make rum they didn't make they didn't but they weren't supposed to be. Whereas the British were sort of like could run right ahead. And so Britain sort of dominated and, and sort of established their styles, the Jamaican style, the Demerara style. They got established early on, were popular, and like if it's working, why change it? Whereas like the Spanish, for example, Spanish and French didn't really, weren't really able to uh, distill until the 1800s you know, on a large scale, legally, and all these kind of things. And so when they were, you know, when they were able to distill, it wasn't like they went and dusted off the old equipment. I was like, no, we, we now we can distill. Like, let's go get new equipment. Um, and at that point in time, it was a very fortuitous moment in time when the Industrial Revolution was just sort of cranking up. And we had major advances in distillation technology. Um, there was, you know, happening in Europe, France and England in particular, and that changes in distillation technologies were things like double retort uh, pot still, but more importantly, for you know, for later the evolution of the of the column still rum. The column distillation um, didn't even exist until 1830, and once it did. The British didn't race to embrace it. The British were like, hey, we, we have a popular rum. We're making this rum like this. Why would we change it? And so, you know, the you know, we see column distillation is sort of is a main sort of style differentiator. We see it come 
to the to the, primarily come to the Spanish and the French colonies first. So that's sort of like one major inflection point there. Another one is um, basically uh, we call the you know you could trace it back to Napoleon in the Napoleonic Wars and, and beet sugar and all that kind of stuff. Long story short. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1800, late 1800s, sugar was um, became immensely unprofitable. There was so much competition, not only from Caribbean sugar, but also from uh, European sugar made from sugar beets in the continent. Long story short, there were price crashes. Estates, Caribbean estates, could not be could not remain profitable or had challenges making enough money to pay for their production costs. And so, uh, and you got to remember, they were making, they were growing sugar not to make rum. They were growing sugar to make sugar. So when you take that sugar and you, and you, you take that sugar and you mill it, you take out 80% of the, of the sugar content to go make sugar crystals. You know, what you're making rum with is that, is that 20% that you didn't extract from it. Um, and like you said, with the price of sugar, you know, so so inexpensive, uh, they couldn't make money. And so, you know, various people, including in the French islands, were like, "Well, okay, if we can't sell this, we can't, you know, sell sugar to profit. Why, why bother making sugar? Like, we're, we can still grow sugar, and we can make far more rum per acre with it from cane <laughs> juice. Basically, instead of like separating it in molasses and sugar, like, no, let's just mill." Mill the cane juice and make rum directly from it. So you could make, mm. you know, for if you could make one gallon of rum with one acre using molasses, you can make five gallons of rum with one acre if you're making cane juice. So it was sort of simple, simple economics that dictated, dictated, um, like, hey, if we're going to stay afloat, we can at least make a lot more rum with the sugar. So, you know, and there's many more stories I could tell, but like I said, it's it's just, it's it's rarely it's it's surprising how much sort of like how economics and politics actually influence the change in, in flavor profile and and you know likewise like war like during during the wars we see you know again these home markets Spain Britain France France can't make a whole lot of branding during World War II, you know during the wars and and you know and or phylloxera for example and so suddenly yeah. we see this huge spikes in like oh suddenly like we don't make enough brandy right now hey martinique can you make a whole bunch more and so so you know rum has you know across all these colonies like no two colonies have the same timeline but they they all have their own sort of interesting timeline they're all sort of whipped back and forth by sort of changes beyond their control and those and some of those changes influenced how they make rum yeah, it's it is it is kind of crazy how it doesn't take kind of like the six six degrees of separation type thing. It really doesn't take a whole lot of cause and effect to be like to realize that this rum agricole that you're enjoying today is because Napoleon, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Like- <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the sort of the fun the fun sort of connection to make. But I'll say we're even seeing it today. Um, we're starting to see, I'm sort of jumping ahead, but there is a, one of the chapters talks about this is that more and more as, is, is, as new distilleries come online, new Caribbean rum distilleries come online. And that was shocking. That would have been shocking 20 years ago. If you said somebody is investing in a Caribbean rum distillery, that's insane. The ones we have there aren't making money. Now, now they're starting to pop up, uh, and they are popping up. And almost all of them are using are either using cane juice, or they are at least uh, growing their own sugar cane and milling it and using the top quality molasses. Essentially, the molasses supply has become an issue that that you can't just call up your molasses broker and say, "I need a hundred tons of molasses here tomorrow." Prices have gone up. Other people want that molasses for other things. And so I think the rum industry is starting to see, like, if we want to remain viable, we need to con- have a better handle on our su- our source material supply. And the way to do that is actually grow sugarcane for the purposes of making rum, not grow sugarcane to make sugar and hope that you can get the molasses later. So we're, it's even today, these sort of things are shifting to what where new rums are going. Um, I see on Barbados, I know all four, you know, Barbados, which would consider the one bastions of the British heritage rum, molasses based Barbados, all four Barbados distilleries are either making 
rum from cane juice or cane syrup, either selling it in very small quantities, but they're all playing in that space cell. They all have mills. They all are, are, all of them are, have some access to sugarcane in Barbados that they are milling to make rum out of. That is, it, it is crazy. And I, I mean, when I, when I asked you the question earlier about like why rum, I'm like, it was it was a bit of a, a necessary question, but I get it. I'm I'm, I'm right there with you. It, it is so fun to to play. It, it's it's one of those spirits that that give you. There's so much material and there's so much to play with that it it feels like a very expansive um, place to be. Uh, and I, I guess this is probably a useful time to note probably one of the most rigorous and exciting features in the book, which is the fact that you have literally documented these individual producers. So can, can you talk about that sort of catalog and, and, and the way in which uh, some of our interested listeners might like get value, might, might derive some value from, from that component of modern Caribbean rum? Sure. Um, so yeah, my, my goal was to sort of remove some of the mystique around around uh, this bottle, this brand, this producer. I wanted to to show both the commonalities of how rum is made across all these countries, uh, different distillers, but also what makes them unique. And so, you know, I'm, you know, constantly picking up a bottle like, oh, it's a, you know, you know, for example, River Antoine, like what does, you know, it's like, oh, interesting. It tastes interesting or weird or whatever. I want to know more about the, the story. I, I want to know what, why, why does it taste the way it does? Why, like, what production choices are they making that that lets them make a rum like this? And so, um, yeah, again, this is you know somebody who just like to dive deep and know everything about everything. Um, there's really not been a consistent, uh, any consistent resource for these producers in the same way that there that there has been for example in scotch whiskey there are books <clears throat> where like we're like going back to the 1800s there's this great book where it's like literally a, a person visited every single or every every scotch whiskey distillery over the course of a year and a half and wrote about them and, and drew pictures of them and um you know there's there's a sort of mystique around rum it's like oh it's this crazy thing it's caribbean rum or jamaican rum and it's like no like let's actually like quantify it like when you talk about barbados you're talking about these four producers they work like this when you talk about jamaican like about these six distilleries and they make rum like this and so i you know and i took a very methodical approach it's sort of chapter by chapter Barbados is a chapter, Jamaica is a chapter, Venezuela is a chapter, Cuba is a chapter. And then within a chapter, uh, each each chapter starts with a a little bit about that country's rum-making tradition, um, some historical perspective and sort of what we expect from those rums from that region. And then it goes into um, distillery by distillery, and each distillery starts sort of similarly, like a little background on that distillery, you know, how it came to be, uh, what their traditions have been, uh, and then moves on into a sort of a very methodical um, iteration over how they make their rum. Source material, fermentation, distillation, aging, blending, so on and so forth. So it's a, you know, if you if you were to say to somebody, if somebody would ask me like, oh, can you tell me about I don't know, uh, Florida Cana's fermentation and go, go to the, go to Nicaragua chapter, go to the, find the Florida, find, find the, uh, uh, Campania Licarera, um, uh, distillery, go to the second section, go to fermentate. Like I can, you can, if you're looking for something specific, you should be able to find it very quickly in here. You shouldn't have to read through acres of text where these things just get mentioned in pass in, in passing. Hmm. Another another very programmery thing to do. Yeah. Information is only useful if you can find it. <laughs> I love it. You know, it strikes me that you know somebody who has judged rum uh, at spirits competitions. It strikes me that what you were just describing would be a very useful. Like it'd be very useful to have this book just kind of plopped in the middle of the judging table when a group of judges is about to dive into a specific flight of uh, of rums from a specific place because one of the things that i think gets lost in translation the most is 
like we know that whatever is considered a norm is a constantly moving thing, right? People are doing things slightly differently these days than they did, you know, several hundred years ago. Right. Nonetheless, having that general understanding of like, ah, this is what like, because I couldn't tell you what distinguishes a Venezuelan rum from a Nicaraguan rum. Like to me, they both sound kind of Spanishy, but that's about where my knowledge ends. But to have this and be like, ah, okay. This is how to think about what it was, generally speaking, for a long time. That really allows me to, you know, then go and taste through a flight, whether that's a blind flight or a flight that perhaps I have created for myself using some of these distiller profiles in your book. But you can then approach that flight knowing what the norm is and then kind of experiencing the different valences of that norm, I guess, with the, right. the individual producers. And I think that's that's lost on people. People really, like, the, I, I, I sympathize with you in that the impulse to categorize is super useful. It saves us time, mm -hmm. as we've been speaking about pretty much this entire conversation. And yet, I think the real value for me as somebody who enjoys tasting these different spirits from all these different regions and, and, and heritages is to find like, ah, that's, this is an agricole, ooh, but it's kind of got these notes and you don't find those notes in most other agricoles. So I, I don't know. Does that strike you as? as yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, hey, thank you for identifying a new market. I need to, I need to go push this to a uh, spirit. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, I'll say that, you know, as much as possible, I tried to make, tried to make this book be sort of factual and accurate. And so I would like to think that there's very little specific opinion in there. But at the end of the day, it's still my interpretation of how these, how, you know, these countries tradition, how they make rum, it's still my, you know, my understanding of that, uh, which may or may not be right. Somebody else may have a more nuanced version, but at least in, in putting all of these in a book is at least you have one consistent perspective on on the category or you know a set of countries a set of a set of distilleries instead of like oh we want to know about venezuela we go to this person's site because they've written about that you want to know about cuba we go to another site because they've written about that and you don't really know like what their differences were and so it's sort of you know you're sort of like so much of rum being a rum enthusiast is cobbling together what little information there is out there and you don't really know is this does this person know what they're talking about do they have a bias whatever um you can say that about me like i have whatever biases i have but at least with this book you have one complete set of information from one perspective and i think that's that's important and, and we've never really had that in rum you know, there's you know, been prior, people prior who have done things somewhat like this, but I th I'm pretty sure this is the most comprehensive uh, ever ever put put down on paper. Well, I think that's uh, this is a, a great moment and inflection point to transition to how people can get their hands on it. I mean, if we had another hour, I would totally dive into you know some of the some of the fun sections that that I really enjoy reading the cane acid section when it comes to like rum additives. I was like, I didn't even know about cane acid. Now I'm obsessed with cane acid. Mm -hmm. uh, I I, I want to talk about uh, like the basically the 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 rum version of. Uh, phenolic parts per million, which is mm -hmm. how these smoky scotches get measured. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we're 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 measuring esters now. These mm -hmm. those fruity chemicals. All of that is in your book. I am definitely going to go back and spend some time with those sections. Uh, but for those of our listeners who might either be looking to pick up a copy for themselves or perhaps gift a copy over the holidays. How do we get our pre-orders in, and you know, when one of these things shipping when they when they uh, get airlifted uh, in eleven pallets to your driveway? Luckily, well, they're they're coming by ocean freight. There's, we couldn't afford to have them airlifted, <laughs> but um, but our we we sell them on our our Wonk Press site, which uh, which uh, which used to be the minimalsttiki.com site, but it's, but again, when you once you go, when you go from one book to two books or more books. Suddenly, you got to rearrange things, and so Minnows Tiki became Walk Press with two products on there. So it's literally mm -hmm. W O N K 
Press, wonkpress.com. You'll see Mimushtiki there. You'll see Modern Caribbean Rum there. Uh, it is in pre-sale now. Uh, we 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 know the books have been printed because we we got we had five of them airlifted to us. So we have we have those books, and that's what you'll see in the pictures there. But um, they are they are uh, we're told on a on a boat slowly traversing the Pacific Ocean. Well, will arrive supposedly arrive sometime in December. Uh, and make their way here to us in New Orleans. Once we get them, we will start fulfilling the pre-sale. We'll start you know, going through the hundreds of orders we've already received and and figure out the best way to, to get them to people. Like I've, I've been shocked at how many, you know, pleasantly shocked at how many uh, international sales where people are paying almost the cost of the book uh, to ship it there. You know, we don't make any money on shipping. That's entirely what the carriers charge us, but people mm -hmm. really want this book to where they're almost, where they're paying almost as much for shipping as for this book. And, and, you know, and we're happy to work with people like, Hey, no, seriously, get together with your friends by two by four. It's much, much more cost effective, you know, buy multiple books and you split them amongst your friends and to buy one. So and we, we encourage that. We've been working with people to, to make that happen. We've also, started and we're starting to talk with like retailers in, in Europe and hopefully elsewhere where it'd be like, Hey, if you'll take a pallet of books, like we'll, we'll sell them to you and you can resell them. And hopefully, you know, we, we you know, we want everybody to have the book and we want everybody to get it as, as uh, inexpensively as possible. Amen to that. Well, we will go ahead and link to Wonk Press over on the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Thank you. And uh, with that, I uh, just wanted to throw a couple of quick lightning round questions your sure. way. Go for it. All right. Uh, kind of appropriate. Desert Island scenario here. You can take one bottle of spirits and you can let, let's, let's say that you can have an endless supply of one cocktail with you. So mm -hmm. stuck there, stranded, marooned rest of your life, or at least no, no prospect of, of, uh, of rescue. Yeah. What's your bottle and what's your cocktail? Oh my, that's hard. Um, it's like, what, which, what's your one child you would take with you? But, um, I would have to say, like I said, I love all the styles. I love all the weird stuff, but something sort of middle of the road so that I could have at least a little bit of all of them. So maybe like a, a Barbadian rum, like a, like a Barbadian rum with a, good dose of pot still in there that's sort of mm. straight down the middle like it's rummy it's not like anything else um, you know and i would miss my jamaican rum or whatever but uh one of that in terms of cocktail to be some sort of um tropical cocktail you know i love the mai tai but maybe just a maybe again sort of middle of the road like a planter's punch type of thing sort of like, mm. you know, rum rum lime sugar exotic spices and and not get too wild about it yeah that's very utilitarian answers they kind of like a straight down the middle fastball kind of right. guy just serve it to me don't yeah because you, you don't want to take like all the something weird and like i've grown to hate this and i have nothing else so well we, we know you mostly through the lens of rum through the lens of you know being a new orleans spirits and cocktail guy but let's let's talk a little bit just uh nuts and bolts matt petrick the person what's a seemingly small or idiosyncratic occurrence something that when it happens it just always makes your day and we're going to take morning cup of coffee off the table because that's everybody's favorite answer oh that's a hard one um i don't know it's, it's not something that i that i would say that happens every day but sort of my happy thing the thing that sort of brings me joy and actually like during the book like when i needed a break from writing the book i would i'm not kidding you go through the start just like pick another document from my treasure chest of documents that i found but not yet really dug into um i you know i'm very much of a rum historian and like i there's so much i want to learn you know we've talked about this uh, and, I, and there's so much out there and i sort of just grab a document and like and start going through it and, and look for things and every once in a while you get this like there's you know there's the missing link. You have those those aha moments where you're like, this is either connected dots that I knew had to be connected, or or something like, I that's wild. I've never seen this before. Now, okay, and you know, send you off in a completely completely different direction. So you know, I I have I have some white like white whales, sort of like interesting 
theories of like, I know somewhere the answer is to this, you know, and I'm always on the hunt for it. But even when I don't find those, I still come across interesting things, uh, like little, little things. You know, a, a quick example would be, um, we've always wondered like 151 rum, why that, why that proof? Uh, and I finally, and I, and I had looked and looked and researched and then like one day out of the blue, this little thing popped up, you know, in, in a David Embury book, I think from, um, <laughs> wow. uh, 1956 is like, oh yes, well it was like this strength was chosen because it wouldn't freeze in the cold Canadian winter. And you're like, hmm. oh, Okay. But yeah, so I, I live, I live for those little moments where, where sort of like a new, new piece of information drops in. It's like, it's like when you're doing a puzzle, I'm like, this is the one piece I needed and it connects everything else. So that's those, <laughs> I, those are my moments. Yeah. I like the little, little, the, the, little, the constant puzzle of, of sifting through all that information leads to right. some little gems. I love, I love that the, the random Canadian cameo in rum history, because like usually it's the Dutch who are kind of showing up out of nowhere yeah. uninvited. Yeah. But in this case, it's the Canadians just kind of kicking in the door. <laughs> yeah. There, there's, uh, there's all sorts of fun stuff with Canada and rum that people don't know about. So. <laughs> uh, so last, last question here. I just wanted a hot take because this is a little news blip that, that came across my radar a couple of months back. Thanks to, uh, our past guest, uh, Jamie Bloschke, who's, uh, got a, a awesome home tiki bar in, uh, in Texas. But, um, apparently, uh, Don, the beachcomber, some, some company has acquired the rights to the Don, the beachcomber brand after it kind of had, had been shuttered. Uh, what's your hot take on that? Please don't screw it up. <clears throat> um, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like if you if you know about you know you know Tiki in the you know fifties and sixties, and it was the you know high culture then. You know, people would get dressed up and go out for it, and it was it was a sort of glorious time that people who weren't alive then you know would like wish we could return to in some ways, at least for certain aspects of it. But uh, you know, we we know that it kind of like crashed in the seventies. It was sort of like overdone and. And, you know, people's mind drifted elsewhere and, and, you know, basically was given up for dead until people like Jeff Berry and Martin Kate sort of came along and sort of revived it. And so we've had this great 20 years or, you know, 10 or 20 years where it sort of popped up and, and we have great, great bars, Smuggler's Cove, Latitude 29, Devil's Reef, you know, three dots. We have these great bars and, and more and more people are getting into it and they're buying our books and they're making the drinks and they're making their own fashion. Oh, we love this. And like, I don't want to see this crash again. I don't want to become the sort of thing where everybody, everybody is sort of like the next big thing. Like we throw Tiki on the name and, 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 you know, people get tired of it. Like we, like we, I want this wave to, you know, run at a, at a steady temperature and keep going for a long time rather than get, get overdone and become, you know, another parody of itself. Like what happened before. Well, maybe, maybe, it's good then that that we have uh, modern Caribbean rum. We can we can get a copy in the hands of of uh, whomever is at the helm of this new Don the Beachcomber operation, and and hope that that at least contributes to maybe some some good decisions yeah. on their part. But Matt, I mean. This has been a blast for me. There's so much that we didn't get into. Uh, and luckily for our listeners, all of that stuff is contained within this new project. Uh, so I'm excited uh, to get my hands on a copy. And for those of us who want to continue to follow you and what you're working on, what are the best places to stay in touch in the digital space? Sure. For a long time, my you know cocktail walk was sort of my only persona, if you will, in that you, there was the Cocktail Walk website, there was uh, Cocktail Walk on Instagram, Cocktail Walk on Twitter, uh, but now it's sort of, I'm sort of splitting that branding. So now if you want cocktail, my cocktail content, it remains there, it's all there, keep doing it. Uh, I'm continuing to do cocktail content in those channels, but we sort of split off and now there's the Rum Walk. So like there's a Rum Walk, um, the Rum Walk uh, Twitter feed, for example. Biggest new announcement is that I have a Substack now, um, join, joining the cool kids on Substack. Uh, and it's at mattpetrick.substack.com, like my name, but it's branded Rum Walk. Uh, someday I might just make the domain Rum Walk point to it. Uh, but sort of Rum Walk is sort of the rummy things. Uh, my Substack is where I'm going to be putting 
my rum content, my rum articles that previously would have been on cocktail walk, new things are going to my Substack. So uh, uh, cocktail walk, rum walk, and of course our publishing company, Wonk Press, uh, which we will, which you know, has some social media things out there, and and in the coming months, you'll see even more uh, added to the Wonk Press portfolio. That is fantastic. We'll have links, as I mentioned, over on the show notes page. And uh, Matt, I know I know you're an hour behind me, but it is here on the East Coast, five o'clock on a Friday. So I'm gonna let you go and uh, perhaps enjoy a dram of one of those many beautiful bottles behind you. But uh, thank you so much for returning here. Thank you for. For having me on, yeah, this is this is a blast. I, I I've always enjoyed chatting with you. Cheers, cheers, sir. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, modern Caribbean rum insights courtesy of Matt Petrick, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.